Friendly Fire co-host Ben Harrison hates Mel Gibson. How can we tell? Well, it's like that old joke about firefighters. How do you know when there's a firefighter at your party? Oh, he'll let you know. Ben hates Mel Gibson so much that at the mere mention of his name, he lets out an indignant half-laugh to indicate that whenever you get done saying what you're saying, he is going to remind you, in case you'd forgotten since the last time he did this, the last time someone mentioned Mel Gibson's name, that Mel is not approved for consumption. This is a bit tricky for us since Mel Gibson has made quite a few war movies, some edge case, some not, and the old Friendly Fire 120-sided die has been mercilessly serving them up lately. Did you know Mel Gibson is an anti-Semite? No? Well, listen for the half-laugh. Mel likes to make big, bloody movies. Remember in Road Warrior how he maintained a completely low affect through the whole movie? He was playing a guy who'd seen some bad shit, and as a result, he hardly raised an eyebrow as all around him, Australian repertory theater actors dressed in the classic post-apocalyptic uniform of leather and feathers were impaled and burned alive. But by the time he made Braveheart, he'd modified that acting technique slightly so that instead of hardly raising an eyebrow, he contorted his mug into a clown mask of crazy face such that his eyebrows danced like caterpillars in a fry pan. That became his action movie signature, but by the time he got to The Patriot, he'd settled his face back down into a mask of sad and constipated for most of the film. Well, he doesn't really appear in Hacksaw Ridge, but he manages to fit all the blasé leather and feathers, the crazy face caterpillars, and the sadness and constipation into this movie with enough budget left over to hose us with gore and send us home with a tote bag. I don't even know what that means, but I said it and I'm sticking to it. Unlike the rest of his catalog, where he loosely bases a film on a cartoon patchwork of semi-fictionalized historical personages and sets them at one another across a landscape of broadly drawn cliches and simplistic rectitude to conclude that good is better than evil, in the case of Hacksaw Ridge, he's undertaken the far more difficult task of recounting the true story of a real man who did documented things within living memory. Desmond Doss is a Medal of Honor winner whose admixture of aw shucks Appalachian corn crib herpaderp and obstinate world-defying pacifistic martyr child is so soda fountain gee whiz it makes Audie Murphy look like Hunter S. Thompson. Getting his story right would be nigh on impossible even if you trusted it to Ken Burns and the Library of Congress. Mel Gibson does not make any attempt at restraint. There were boot camps out there where an Italian guy, a Jewish guy, a Texan, and a couple other guys, including Mel Gibson's son, all hazed the misunderstood nobody until he was revealed in the heat of battle to be the hero they needed all along. I'm sure it happened. I bet there were tons of real-life soldiers who kept a picture of their faithful sweetie in their Bible and looked at it all the time for inspiration and weren't phased at all when the other guys ragged him about it. I'm even sure that there were plenty of Japanese soldiers on Okinawa that, when shot with a machine gun, immediately bounced on a trampoline and somersaulted through a curtain of flamethrower while somebody sprayed SpaghettiOs out of their shirt through a hidden hose. But how many of them single-handedly rescued 75 men and then flew up to heaven on a stretcher without even being dead? On today's Friendly Fire, help me get one more. As we discuss the really actually based on a true story 2016 World War II biopic, Hacksaw Ridge.
Welcome to Friendly Fire, the war movie podcast where the hosts are still trying to figure out what the filmmaker was trying to say when the hero of the film stared at the thou shalt not kill commandment for the first 10 minutes of the movie. <laughs> I'm Ben Harrison. <laughs> I'm Adam Pranica. And I'm John Roderick. Just, I just really, I, I felt like that scene was about something, but I couldn't put my finger on it. I don't know. I mean, to me, when uh, when Desmond's body was on the stretcher and it was being like, it wasn't being lowered. No, it was off of Hacksaw it was Ridge. Floating it was, into heaven. It was rising <laughs> it really was. into the pearly gates. Like, how did they construct? The, the the line system to go up off of Hacksaw Ridge. Where was it going? The camera was going down. The, the <laughs> cot was going up. This movie was lauded. It was it it won some awards. Yeah, it made a ton of money, and it has like Mel Gibson sat in the audience at the Oscars that year. Really? Yeah. He's back in polite company. They sat him next to the bathroom, though, right? (laughs) (laughs) Next to the galley. It received a standing ovation at Cannes, right? It has like a 92% fresh rating. And it is a steaming pile, this movie. What are... How... How am I wrong? And the rest of the world is right. I think Andrew Garfield is great in this movie. That's what I'll say. I think there's a lot good about it, but you would have to make such an amazing second half of this movie to overcome how how fucking atrociously bad the first half is. And and I think that the movie does get better toward the end. But boy, it is a bad movie. <laughs> My feeling about the the war scenes. Let's just go right to the war scenes. Let's leave the first half of this two and a half hour movie, which is like an episode of Mayberry RFD. Let's leave it alone for a second. Could could we tee up this part of the conversation by describing how this movie goes off? There is a there's a jack in the box man on the battlefield that starts screaming at Desmond, screaming at the camera, and then the movie is never the same afterward. Yeah. It turns into the passion of Okinawa. It really does. Henceforth. It is such a gore fest. Wow. And a gore fest like I've never uh, like I've never seen. Uh, and you really feel like Mel Gibson was like, oh, Saving Private Ryan, eh? Yeah. Let me show you some faces blown off. It's, we, it's freaking pornographic. We get our half bob in this movie. <laughs> we do. I never thought we would get our half bob. <laughs> More than <laughs> Ten one. Ten films after USS Indianapolis, but here we, he is. And he is being used as a shield while a guy runs downrange killing dozens of Japanese soldiers. But, but, in his defense, carrying a half bob as a human shield is a lot easier than a full body. It's true. that We, get, we don't get just one half bob. We get multiple half bobs, including both halves of right. Bob. Right? Because there's a bottom half of a, a yeah, Bob, you too. Get, you get bottom half Bob and top half Bob. You got half face. You get, like, blown off face. You'll get just pile of guts. Pile of guts. Just sitting there with flies on them. Rats eating pile of guts. Faces. Maggots. You know, war is hell, but for That's rats right. and maggots, it's it's kind of heaven. It's pretty nice, right, until the bombing starts. But every single person that gets shot in this movie has a blood packet the size of a fucking can of SpaghettiOs. Like, there's not a single bullet that hits a person where it doesn't, <laughs> where it doesn't come out the other side 
with like a with like a pound of hamburger. I question the Allies' strategy for placing all the mini tramps on the battlefield. <laughs> <laughs> People, it's a they were flying and like pirouetting. Oh, so beautiful and a ton of fire. Like uh, to talk about the, some of the stunt work practically, like the idea of gelling a guy and lighting them on fire in a war film or an action film is something that we see a lot. Yeah, but I have never seen a stunt performer gelled up lit on fire and then shot with a flamethrower which seems like a an order of magnitude more dangerous and that happens so often in this film absolutely there were scenes where guys were right i mean there is so much immolation in this movie more than any movie more than every movie we've ever seen yeah yeah and like like the the burned body count is as big as all previous friendly fire films put together (laughs) probably but watching the stunts where these guys are on fire and they're not it, and it's kind of a like a, a pretty close up shot so they're not in fire suits yeah and they're just I think like they coat them with something they're like smear yeah goo je- on them jelly but but that's not the this is major flames and it's projectile flames at someone's face now, i don't know and 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 I, and I read that this that he tried not to use cgi yeah but i don't know how you could you could burn that many stuntmen and not get reported to the to the workman's comp people. I mean, it's insane. <laughs> the it's ASPCA insane. got involved, and there were no animals in the film. They were just they were just horrified. But it is it is so it is so gory and so. I mean, there's a point at which you go like, I see his message is that war is hell, but then it goes it goes way past that to the point where his message is that he can show us every way a man can die. And then it goes past that to the point where it's like, there is no message here. This is just, he's just going for it. He's just trying to make it impossible to eat spaghetti and watch this movie. I feel like he, he achieved something intentionally here. Like this, the, the combat scenes in this movie are so much more kinetic and violent and disgusting than almost anything we've seen really like it's it's like a new way of showing what combat is like agreed we have never seen a thing like this it's uh it's awful the Cirque du Soleil <laughs> show <laughs> O-F-F-A-L yeah that's what I'm saying <laughs> awful there's like a weird uh, emphasis yeah. on one of the letters <laughs> it is uh it's in residency at the Bellagio for yeah. a couple of weeks but uh, ticket sales have not been going well I can see the math being done uh, on this film that goes something like, in order to truly appreciate Desmond's pacifism, you must counterbalance that with the most horrific display of wartime violence. Right. Like, only then can you truly grasp the the personal sacrifice that, that Desmond Doss has here. Like, but does that pencil out in this film? Like, it seems... Like, it makes logical sense to make that case. But but the violence is so extreme that it it does not serve that thesis as, at all to me. I, I, I considered that, too, as while watching it. But the problem was, and I full confession, we have different differing approaches, the three of us, to watching movies. You know, I like to watch them on my phone in the bathtub or, or you in know, a parking while, lot while I'm driving. Airport. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you like to set your phone... In a bowl of spaghetti <laughs> that is floating in your bathtub, but I did not. I didn't read anything about this movie going in, 
and with the title Hacksaw Ridge, I assumed it was, you know, going to be some sort of World War II, whatever movie. Um, and it focused the first half of it on this, uh, this corn fed, big eared, like hillbilly guy. And it was such, it was so cliche drenched that I almost couldn't believe it. I looked forward to talking to you guys about it because we could have built the first half of this movie just out of random parts of war movies that are lying around. Pearl Harbor could have been a warning to so many other war films and and so many other war films are actually copying their notes. Mm-hmm. It's weird. It really feels like parts of movies from like the 50s and 60s at the beginning. A lot of that, but the, my problem was I didn't know that this was a true story. John, the very first frame of the movie is a true story. Does it really say yeah. a true story? Did but you, you know, people say that, a true story. I mean, you could just say that about like, oh, it's about the moon landing or whatever. John might have been looking for a meatball in his bowl I when, was. Uh, when that title card came up. I, you know, my internet uh, didn't, it stopped buffering for a second. Mm. <laughs> anyway, um, uh, then all through the battle scenes, I'm like, what are we watching here? And especially when he starts saving 75 dudes single-handedly on a battlefield, firemen carrying them hundreds of yards. It's hard not to think about Forrest Gump in that scene, right? <laughs> I, I honestly, I could, I couldn't. I was sitting there just, just incredulous that this, that what I thought was, you know, a semi-fictional account. There yeah. are parts of Desmond Doss's story that weren't included in the film because Mel Gibson thought they were unbelievable. The one where he he's lying on the battlefield, then shot, wounded, and he says, don't take me on the stretcher, give yeah. it to another more wounded guy. And Desmond then he, looks at where the stretcher's going and it's going down, and he's like, no, I'm waiting for the one that goes up. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it was during that period after he sent the stretcher on that he received his most devastating sniper wound, yeah, and he lay on the battlefield for five more hours? Yeah. And Mel Gibson was like, whoa, that's over the top. Yeah. So this is, a, this is a crazy true story, but the way it's portrayed, I mean, I don't know if you guys have ever fireman carried a, a grown man. I, I think the best I could do is fireman carry a half bob. Right. That's a lot of dead weight. Would not want to try and do it with Vince Vaughn. Earmuffs. No, and to, do, to, to, to fireman carry 75 guys off a battlefield, there's something else happened, not that. Right. I mean, you'd have to be you couldn't you couldn't you if, couldn't if Mel Gibson made decisions to disclude a bunch of Das's story for for their unbelievability. I feel like he should have taken out three more of those scenes that could be thought of in the same way. I mean, somehow he did his Congressional Medal of Honor like report says he saved 75 men. Yeah. And that was an agreement between him and a couple other people because Desmond Dawes is like, you know, I think it was like 50. Like, let's be honest. It's probably 50. And everyone around him was like, no, it was 200. <laughs> <laughs> and they agreed that 75 would be a at fair least. estimate. Yeah. But like, I, I, it doesn't go into exactly how he carried them off the battlefield. The yeah. film does not mince the reasons for this at all like Desmond Doss is sitting in prayer after rescuing a person asking for strength to get another person and then he goes out and gets them oh because God he says God I cannot hear you and then a voice from the battlefield goes medic it's it's the power of God that compels him and keeps him going that's what the film's saying there is a lot of God in this movie a lot it is really interesting to me that 
somebody that is a, as extreme a Catholic as Mel Gibson is is interested in making a movie about somebody that's extremely different. Like Seventh Day Adventism is like a pretty big religion. I think it's like number six worldwide or something like that. But it's a very unusual religion, and in terms of like being a a fairly modern. Uh, slant on Christianity that arises out of like an apocalyptic, you know, prediction of the end of the world that didn't come true. And like, it is about as far from the Opus Dei, like the Pope isn't really the Pope anymore, Catholicism that Mel Gibson practices. To me, it felt like the the thing that most connected the film to Mel Gibson was the father character. It felt like that was his reason for making it. Because there's so much about Tom Doss that reminds me of Mel Gibson. His substance abuse, his anger, uh, his religion as it, and its role in his life. Like I, I feel like there was a lot of thought put into, into the Tom Doss character. And I feel like that was a major reason for Mel Gibson to... I mean, setting aside how supernatural Desmond's story is and, and really... I think it makes for an interesting film if you were to read it. Like, the story of this guy should be a movie. Whether or not it should be this movie is something we'll continue to discuss. But I think there's something about Tom that makes, that connects him to Mel in a strange way. I definitely felt like it is a, it is a good question how Mel Gibson and the Seventh day Adventist story being such a major mover of the, of the plot and of the man. I was looking for that connection throughout the film. And I just feel like the power of Jesus is the real, is the thing that Mel could get with. Right. Right. But Dawes is a major celebrity in seventh day Adventism. And from the, from the moment he won this medal, they've used him as a kind of, you know, as and and rightfully so as an example of, I mean, he's vegetarian, he's pacifist, and yet he performed all these heroic acts, and it, it's you know it, it speaks volumes. The scriptwriter for this movie made a documentary about him before writing the script for this novelization, and he is a Seventh Day Adventist. So huh. there, there's an element. I don't I, I don't want to compare it too closely with Scientology, but there's an element of um, there there is a church presence in the in the making of this film and it's not like a i don't think it was meant as a a recruiting film but it's not just a a movie that was made out of some script bucket i was really struck by the depiction of the seppuku ritual in this film like we don't really get to know any of the japanese soldiers at all and like the only lingering shots that we get really are the commander of the Japanese forces in his cave uh, committing ritual suicide. And the the movie does really seem to pit one kind of faith against another. And, you know, almost inescapably the conclusion is this is the correct religion. The, the religion of, of Desmond Dawes is the correct religion. 
One of the unbelievable scenes that was edited out was Desmond finding that guy who had just committed seppuku and like giving him some morphine <laughs> and and putting a tourniquet around him around <laughs> <Yeah>. his neck. <laughs> oh, uh, the other another message in this movie is that the tourniquet is the greatest life-saving technique of all modern medicine. Yeah. Cuz he applies a tourniquet to fully 75% of the soldiers he rescues. He's just like, here's another instance where a tourniquet would How help. How many belts is he wearing? <laughs> but you're right, Ben, that the, the the Japanese that we do meet, and there are thousands of them in this movie. Yeah, they're just a horde. But they're, they are an unknowable horde. There's no, we meet the commander and we meet that one wounded guy in the cave. Oh, yeah. Who, who doesn't cry out because he's struck with the spirit of incredulity and Dawes gives him a little packet of morphine. I mean, that's a good way to actually kind of be a tunnel rat. Just carry a bunch of morphine and everybody you encounter. Just be like, <laughs> just bribe everybody. Hey, with check morphine. it out. Feel good now? Uh, what happens to that Japanese soldier when his buddies find him with an American wound dressing on him? Like, where were you? All gacked out. Like, eh, yeah. it's cool, man. <laughs> As a movie about pacifism, I, I found it very interesting that it came up right after The Patriot, which was a Mel Gibson movie from over 15 years earlier, but is also about somebody who tries to be a pacifist in a war. And I feel like that movie kind of decides that pacifism is pointless. This movie maybe takes a a slightly different take on it, but... um, yeah, the Patriot kind of has a message that you can be a pacifism up until you're pushed to a breaking point. There is no such breaking point for Desmond Doss. Yeah, and there's so many moments, like there's a moment where one of the other medics is attending to somebody on the battlefield and has to snatch up a rifle really quickly and kill some Japanese soldiers that come over a berm. And Desmond is never faced with a moment like that. He's never... Faced with the moment where if he does not touch a, a rifle, a rifle, he is definitely dead. The interrogation of his pacifism that happens throughout the second half of the movie, because until he gets to boot camp, all we've seen is him staring at the thou shalt not kill poster. Um, there's a little foreshadowing about the encounter that he has with his dad, but we don't see the resolution of that until he describes it in the foxhole but we have no there's no inkling in the early part of the film that Dawes is going to not pick up a rifle in the war right I mean watching this movie not realizing it was about a real person I was like just it it just seemed like a boot camp story until he until he says oh I'm not gonna pick up a gun how many true story title cards would be sufficient for you like should they just pop in every 20 minutes like would that? Let me, let me see. Would that be helpful? If the movie had a name that suggested that it was about a person uh-huh. instead of just being called Hacksaw Ridge, Hacksaw Ridge colon the Desmond the, Dawes the, the story. The Desmond Dawes story. There yeah. you go. It this, needed a colon. Yeah. Because uh, Hacksaw Ridge, it's a pretty deceptive film title. It is. If you go to see a movie called Hamburger Hill, there's nary a saw in the whole thing. Yeah. Right. And Hamburger Hill wasn't about Joe Hill, the famous. Sure wasn't. No. And it was not about uh, Pete Hamburger either. <laughs> but every one of his squad mates over the course of the film has a moment, has, has some scene where they go, 
look, you're going to have to pick up a gun at some point. And he is totally resolute. But throughout the course of the film, that pacifism, it gets interrogated just enough that you feel like, now, wait a minute. You're not you haven't really thought this all the way through. I mean, by being here as a medic, you are supporting the war effort. You're supporting the like an army is the sharp part of the spear. But then everybody in in the rear is also part of the the support staff is just as crucial. And so being a medic on a battlefield, although you're although you're in the short term saving the lives of your buddies, in the long term you are part of a killing machine. So to be a pacifist, a conscientious objector, but also taking an active part in an assault, you can't really claim to have philosophically worked it all out. And I mean, he doesn't strike you as a philosopher, but yeah, I mean, he does like, like anytime somebody tries to dig into that with him, he's like, basically says those kinds of questions are above my pay grade. Right. He kind of leads with, I'm a very simple man and I have thought about this in very simplistic terms, but this is what I've arrived at. Isn't that the vocabulary of, of the most devout people though? Like they are very hard and fast rule followers they and and to interrogate those feelings to any depth would mean undermining their idealism right. and introducing questions into, the, into their lives that they don't want but the film doesn't right right like dawes doesn't i think what? it's interesting that they don't depict dawes as that philosopher the philosopher warrior that you're talking about or of a man of great intelligence like he's pretty simple yeah but the the movie has no comment on it other than that he's a saintly. Yeah. He's saintly. Yeah. Right. Because like lack of intelligence can manifest a lot of different ways. He's always sure of himself. He's he's not like, oh, I don't know. He's he's convicted at, at every step. And there are a couple of scenes, a couple of teasers where it appears that uh, that the Japanese are coming over the ridge and this is it. He's going to have to pick up a gun. This is the moment. And then there's always you know, uh, something always happens. And he, he does. Smitty always jumps out of, out of a bush and that's shoots ex- everybody. That's exactly right. I mean, there are three or four moments where he's about to get it handed to him and Smitty invariably pops out and shoots the guys on his behalf, which uh, again is sort of like, um, he never has to face the question. Of, who is Jesus in who in those scenes? Oh, thank you. <laughs> when there's only one set of footprints, it's Smitty that's carrying you. Right. But he does the thing where he pulls a, a a a dead body over himself to hide from a patrol. Yeah. So I mean, he's not above a little subterfuge. The one time Desmond does touch a gun, it's to roll it over a strip of fabric so that he can drag Vince Vaughn. Like it's like if that fabric was the bed of a pickup truck and Vince Vaughn was firing at the at the trucks in pursuit, sitting it on that rag. Firing his machine gun while Desmond pulls him at 25 miles an hour across what had formerly been a log and body strewn wasteland. And now yeah, suddenly, suddenly, suddenly like it's a, very smooth. It's like a water slide. <laughs> this is my moment of pedantry because anyone who's Oh, ever, wait a minute. Hold it. We've gotten in trouble before. Anyone who's carried anything heavy in that configuration, like hands behind you, will tell you that you can't run at full speed because your feet kick into the thing that you're carrying. You'd have to run like bow-legged in order to do it, and that's not what Desmond Doss is doing. No, he's running full strength. 
Yeah. I would love to see the special effects rig that made that shot possible because I I thought about that as well. Like how did how was this achieved? Well, and Vince Vaughn is six five and two hundred and sixty pounds, yeah. right? Yeah. I mean, he's he not- is always soaking wet. <laughs> I thought for sure Desmond was going to grab the rifle and then remove its strap to make into a tourniquet. Oh, like I thought would that would be the nice. only reason he'd touch a gun. When Gotta he grabbed the strap. gun, I was like, poser! Yeah. Compromiser! <laughs> Her emails, though! He just starts unloading round after round. <laughs> just like, fuck it, horse. you know what? Fuck you! I have had enough. <laughs> the Foley work in this movie is um, astonishing. Yeah. I mean, it uh, it sounds like somebody is is pounding Ziploc bags full of Jello over the course of an hour and a half. Just like, bwok, 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 bwok. it's like, ugh. It, it's it's a, absolutely plays a thirty percent role in how grotesque the violence is. They almost don't need to time it up with shots because there there will be a shot if you hit a yeah, right. ziplock full of jello. There's so much coverage too in the in the battle scenes, like from above, in profile, from behind the gun, watching the, watching the discharged shells come out, like every possible angle of weapons being fired or yeah. bullets being absorbed or people on fire. Some super choreographed shots, like yeah. they have a shot where like. 200 American and Japanese soldiers like zipper together as the camera swoops back. Yeah. And and then other shots where it just looks like, oh yeah, there was a real battle and they had like 75 cameras running. Yeah, I mean, and there are scenes that feel like the opening ceremony of an Olympics in China where <laughs> there are 2,000 people with flags waving and tumblers and jugglers. Yeah. There was a lot of it that was awesome and like using the definition that is not cool, like just awe-inspiring to watch. In the traditional sense of the word, not the Ninja Turtle sense of the right. word. Yeah, that's how I mean it. I am a party dude, but I didn't mean awesome like that. That shot where whoever it is, it's the Thompson guy, is marching forward on the battlefield and we see the carnage underneath, but the camera is fixed on the receiver of the of the thompson and in slow motion it's just going and we follow it i'd never seen that shot before and i mean it's beautiful it's a beautiful shot if you're if you're like let me see some more thompson Mm -hmm. show me your thompson yeah that shot and a couple of others really reminded me of like first person shooter yeah video games also And I wondered if that was an intentional visual reference because the only other time I've seen that done was in Doom, the motion picture based on the video game Doom. (laughs) See, that had a colon in it and I understood. Ben hasn't seen Goonies, but he has seen Doom. (laughs) It's a great Rosamund Pike film. Oh, yeah. It's got the rock in it. I do like Rosamund Pike. That should be on our pork chap list. My one critique of of the war scenes other than like the overall critique of them is that they did the rule of threes thing where every time there was a surprise moment where some Japanese troopers came over the edge of a foxhole or something, it was always three. We always saw three guys and they all, and then 30 seconds later, there'd be another shot where three guys would get it. Badoom, badoom, badoom. And it, it repeated enough times that I was like, no more three. 
no more three kill four or two mm-hmm. or nine <laughs> well and then the, and then the camera cuts wide and shows two thousand japanese soldiers <laughs> getting bombarded by naval shells dying three at a time <laughs> god that uh the battleship is the only place you want to be during this conflict good lord <sighs> like if you weren't going to get 40 minutes of blood and viscera and heads exploding and half bobs, uh, the artillery shells exploding on top of the ridge were amazing. Pretty beautiful. Yeah, great effect. You know, this is toward the end of the war. In fact, when they were on Okinawa, VE Day happened. So we were done fighting Hitler. Okinawa was meant to be the base for operations for the assault on the mainland or the main islands of Japan. Yeah, some of the timeline didn't make sense to me because like the middle of the movie is about him getting court-martialed and then everything after that is our is our first actual combat. But in the court-martial, he says like when Pearl Harbor happened, I took it personal, except for it's 1945 by the time they're fighting. Yeah. But he like took it personal and and then like slowly over the course of four years decided to sign up for the army. I think, you know, the real story is he had a job in Newport News building ships. Hmm. So he wasn't just still living in Lynchburg, Virginia or Kentucky or wherever the hell he was. He was he was up in the Appalachians somewhere in the real story of the time. He had got he had a war job. And so he was exempt from serving because his job in the shipyard was meant that he he could be a conscientious objector and keep building battleships but i think somewhere along the line he he felt like he needed to actually go to war maybe there were like uh, people of color also working in the shipyards and he was like this isn't for me there are none of those in this movie no not a one not a great look the timeline is confusing because the actual events that were cited in his Medal of Honor award took place over several days on the battlefield. And also he was cited, he got a bronze star or two bronze stars for battles that happened prior to this on other islands. Like he fought, he, he and his crew were battle-hardened veterans by the time they got to Okinawa. Huh. They, they really make the case that this is like the first action they're seeing. Yeah, they show up all bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. But no, they were they had already seen a lot of combat. Is it true that their drill sergeant would then be their sergeant when they went to the war? It's weird. Like it's sort of like checking in for a flight at the desk and then that person is also the, one of the flight attendants on the plane. <laughs> yeah. And then the person at the hotel when you yeah. get there. Yeah. No, I think that's true. I think they I think they went to war with the with the one that brung them. Wow. Mm. Then I shall henceforth call you chief as a sign of great respect to your people. God, Vince Vaughn is just a big, tall target. He is just so much bigger than everyone else in this film. Well, and he's got that grease gun too, which yeah. you don't really, you don't see that as often. Yeah. Like what the, what's going on with his little burp, burp gun? There was some trivia about that gun is like that gun replaced the Thompson and it was lighter weight or yeah, something. Yeah, and was preferred by many. Oh. Though the Thompson was such a reliable piece of gear that many people were reluctant to switch over to the grease gun but in, cool. this, in this film it was uh it was old reliable for vince vaughn yeah he fire he fires ten thousand bullets out of it and never changes a, yeah never changes a single magazine yeah <laughs> vince vaughn you know he was at first i thought it was a little stunt casting 
along the lines of Biloxi blues, right? Yeah. I thought that we were going to get, we were getting somebody that shouldn't be in the role. And then he was pretty good at it for a while. Vince Vaughn has this resting kind of twitchy uh, energy to him that I thought really lent itself well to his character. I thought he was good in the movie. There's the one scene toward the end where he's walking through the battlefield telling everybody to get their shit together and keep their heads down and so forth. And um, he reverted to a very strange accent and and it's like a strange posture. Um, Started well, telling guys that they were money and they didn't even know it. Well, it, it seemed like a Christopher Walken impression almost. Oh, he was like, you guys, get your stuff together. I, I don't do a Christopher Walken. Impression. Take your watch. <laughs> hide it in your ass. <laughs> and it, and it, was, it was enough of, it seemed enough weird that, that it kind of shocked me out of the movie for a second. I thought that he should have beat the shit out of Desmond at boot camp for laughing at all of his quips. I was wondering why Desmond was given such uh, leniency in those scenes. I feel like in every boot camp scene, there's the guy who laughs at the drill star- sergeant and then has to go run 40 miles for laughing. We were, he was saving it up. Yeah. Uh, yeah, the, the, the suffering of boot camp was somewhat muted and they kind of they kind of talk about it, but they don't really show it as much. Like, you know, there's like one shot of him scrubbing out a toilet but there is the bloody pillowcase. But that normal thing where the the drill sergeant comes in and says, you know, you got your weakest link here, and so everybody's passes are canceled. Mm-hmm. Um, other we've seen other boot camp movies that really focused on that, and we only get a, only get a little glimpse of that too. You can't hate all of these people all the way early on; otherwise, they're coming around to Desmond at the end. It doesn't feel earned, right? We, I, I loved the scene where he shows up in boot camp and the guy's like, hey, you know, over here is little Jimmy and then, you know, yeah. and, and that, that back there is Spooge and Spooge is like, hey, <laughs> we're giving these characters lines and names so that when they die later, it'll feel more impactful. Yeah. Real Brooklyn pizza. There's always the guy from Brooklyn. As soon as yeah. the Brooklyn guy was introduced, hey. I was like, John Roderick <laughs> called it. <laughs> always a Brooklyn guy. Brooklyn, I stand in for all ethnic people. I love Ghoul. Ghoul. Ghoul was given very little to do. Ghoul, other than just looking ghoulish as a substitute for a character. But when he yeah. remembers his name is Ghoul yeah. on the battlefield, also known as, he's like, <laughs> yeah. Ghoul. Yeah. It's like, yeah, uh, that's pretty good. Yeah. Little Ghoul. Guys, I have a I have a moment of pedantry also. Oh, let's hear it because I have one too. I just didn't want to step on yours. All right. I already talked about the torso being ridiculous as a shield, and that was that was one thing that I uh, that I made a note of. But uh, the one that I uh, wanted to talk about uh, the cliff shown in the movie is an exaggeration of the actual Maeda escarpment, hmm. which is not nearly as high or as vertical in reality, and that really blew my mind when I read it. Because the mechanics of this movie are so, so dependent on the crazy thing that they have, like the net that they have to climb up that is a sheer cliff face. And that's like the only way up to this ridge. And then all of the battle takes place up there. I I was blown away to, to learn that that was not in fact 
what it was. And and the first question I in my mind was, what did they? How did he lower them down if it wasn't a sheer cliff face? He slid them down because it was like the it was like a gravel pit. Yeah, I guess that actually makes more sense. That is painful. You could throw a baseball from the ground up to the top of the real escarpment. Why didn't the Japanese target the tree that Desmond was using uh, to, <laughs> to, to like winch people down with? That should have been their primary target. Sure. Right, Take out that tree. Right where the Americans are coming over the ridge, there's a big tree yeah. that it seems like they could use for a variety of things. Yeah. Yeah, just, just blow that out of the ridge line and the net will fall and then they won't be able to get up as easily even even just using it as a handhold as you climbed off the net it would seem like you'd yeah you'd chop that tree down blow yeah. it up well drop all remaining ordinance on <laughs> on that this tree. tree you know uh, adam they're very inscrutable people yeah in this <laughs> just said out loud in this movie <laughs> my moment of pedantry was that when he is leaving for boot camp he gets on a bus and leans out sits in his chair and leans out the window and kisses his his betrothed goodbye and then the very next shot is of the bus driving away with him sitting on the other side of the bus what nobody put that on imdb so i didn't know about it <laughs> Did you guys think that Hal, the brother character, was going to be more of a going concern? I really did. As soon as he enlists and sits down at the dinner table, I was like, oh, well, this is going to be the reason that Desmond enlists, and it was. But then I thought, we're eventually going to see Hal on the battlefield, and and this movie will come to a point where he's got to rescue his brother. We never see Hal again. We see him in the credits when we see real Hal. Yeah, yeah. Why do all the work of building that character only to lose him after the first quarter of the film? The dad character was of major significance throughout, but uh, but Hal serves to be the inciting incident. Like the brick to Hal's face informs like this pre-consciousness that Desmond achieves later on during the scene with his father and the and the close call shooting of him. Like it sort of plants the seed that then grows later into what becomes Desmond's inability to carry a weapon into combat. But it's weird how this film just forgets about him completely. There's not a letter. There's not a reference to, we don't know what Hal did when he was in the military. Yeah. Like at a certain point when, when the dad is like putting on his great war uniform and kicking down the door at the, court martial i figured well, maybe hal is dead and and this is like like we're, we got to get it right with this one or something like that was the whole family seventh day adventists and if so was hal not also a seventh day adventist and if so how did he serve dad is a violent drunk so doesn't seem like he's keeping up with all the tenets of seventh day adventism right um, seems He's like, more of a five day guy. Seems like mom is <laughs> mom's pretty devout, but she never she never rams it down anybody's throat. It doesn't seem like it seems like everybody else in the movie is a lot more chill. I love Rachel Griffiths, by the way. Like she gets very little to do in this film, but I think she's great in it. She is good, and just uh, you know, everybody in this film makes commendable decisions about the people that they choose to work with. <laughs> uh, I'm confused. I feel that way every day I work with you, Ben. <laughs> <laughs> I have not gotten on gone on drunken tirades about how the Jews start wars. Have you not? Have you not? 
you don't remember everything that happens. I, I mean, I do, but it's like in the context of uh, kink play with my wife. Uh-huh. So, <laughs> uh, Andrew Garfield, who is uh, who identifies as a Jewish actor, um, <laughs> uh, is, John, he's trans Jewish, uh, right? His father was Jewish, so the so he's he doesn't have the right of return. Mm. Um, <laughs> But you know, Gar- Garfield is a Garfield was his grandparents were Garfinkel, and they they changed it to Garfield to make it in the world. But big uh, fans of the comic, he was yeah, that's right. He was thirty three when this movie was made, and somehow his family he, hates Mondays, <laughs> loves lasagna, <laughs> normal, uh, ambivalent to negative uh, feelings. Uh, I, I think we checked all the boxes. Please continue, John. Shucky darn and slop the chickens. Uh, I do not understand how Andrew Garfield can can seem at 33 years old too young to serve in a war, not only in the early scenes where he's playing a teenager, but throughout the movie. Like at the very end of the movie, covered with blood and bullet wounds, I still he still reads as a 15-year-old. He's really got Adam Pranica face. Yeah. <laughs> You could cover me in blood and mud, and I still wouldn't look older than 15. I've been trying to since we met. Yeah. <laughs> You're trying to cover me with a lot of things, John. Gross. A lot of different bodily substances. <laughs> yeah, that's why we call you Spooge. <laughs> you do not call me that, and that is not my call sign. What's that, Spooge? If I were to choose a call sign that comes from this film, it might be Dirty Eyeball, because that guy that gets buried by Desmond under all that dirt exposing only like he's got dirt around his eyelid like like perfectly covering it like to a to a millimeter i wondered if that was makeup or if they if that just happened with the dirt that had to be so uncomfortable really trippy can you and also can you imagine being on a battlefield buried with just your eyeball and you're watching as the soldier comes along and bayonets all the bodies. I love how Desmond's like, take a deep breath. <laughs> like he's going to have to hold it for 15 minutes. Come on, Desmond. Give that guy a tourniquet. That guy was one of the members of the 96th that they were there to like replace or reinforce or whatever. And I feel like they cast all of those guys for resting exhaustion face. Yeah. Like those guys, those guys show up dirty and covered in blood and never stop being dirty and covered in blood the entire movie this question probably doesn't have an answer but why does the road into and out of a battlefield why is that always the same it seems like for morale reasons the guys leaving the front should take a different road from the guys driving to it yeah the the chuck wagon might maybe doesn't drive past everybody that's heading to the front that is not good to arrive and then see just a truckload of deads i was waiting for the moment of pedantry to be about that because i'm just not sure that there would ever be a situation where bodies would be transported like that that's off a the bad stack job right really bad stack job. not efficient I, you're probably going to lose some off the back i think you well put this guys, film like the, this is an era that predates tetris so people just didn't know to stack things neatly you probably want to go in kind of a weave configuration I like see. a latticing sure crisscross applesauce oh yeah back, like a peach so. pie yeah no i feel like soldiers body are, lattice is my call sign by the way body lattice <laughs> whatever spooge <laughs> Body lattice is your uh, is your Amazon gift list tag. <laughs> uh, I I feel like the soldiers treat the bodies of the fallen with more respect in almost every instance. You're never gonna just 
pick up your fellow dudes and just huck them in the back of a truck. I don't think even in a in a carnage situation, you're going to treat them better. Yeah. And like sticking the half bobs onto the post like a four corner bed. Like, that's not cool. I mean, using them as shields in the first place. <laughs> we've never seen that before. And there's a reason we've never seen that before. It's ridiculous. The thing I read was that, you know, in addition to being absurd that he could like carry that and run while accurately firing most of the munitions fired by the japanese rifles would have gone right through the the torso it wouldn't have actually protected him from anything right hey uh i also thought that this movie might have a record for most grenades thrown and then thrown right back a lot of that including a handball one where the grenade was thrown and he handballs it back does that count as using a weapon Oh, good point. He does kick a grenade a couple of yeah, times. Yeah, he pay-laser grenade at the end. Like, the the one guy, like, that is about to kill Smitty and and he attacks and then Smitty shoots, like, he's he is about to beat that Japanese soldier up, right? So he's gonna do some violence. It's just not with a gun. It never happens. He never, he never reaches for a brick. Maybe he was going to take him down using morphine. Like, yeah. like, blast a couple of morphine caps into him. Uh-huh. Oh, yeah. And then just, like, lay him down gently. Sure, the a little, dirt. the carrot and the stick, right? Do you think the Japanese soldiers that Desmond connected to the winch and then lowered uh, were then murdered at yes, the bottom? That's I did the get implication, that sense. right? Yeah. The guy says they didn't make it. Yeah. Seems like they got smothered. Morphine is good. I wondered at a certain point, because there there were a few token shots that tried to give us some Japanese perspective. Yeah. And I wondered what this movie would have looked like to a Japanese audience in 2016. Because I don't, I, I cannot imagine a Japanese audience watching this and f- you're never going to find a character where you go, that's my guy. I can't imagine being like persuaded to even go see this movie like oh oh we're gonna go see a movie directed by an avowed racist about a battle between white americans and japanese many modern films are financed globally uh and much of that money comes from asian countries but this one was shot and produced in australia taking advantage of the australian film tax break there it makes me wonder if that was the thing that made this depiction possible because in a in a modern filmmaking environment i feel like it'd be really hard to pull this off when you're getting your money from so many countries around the world and and exhibiting a a film all around the world because so many films made in hollywood now are are dependent on global ticket sales this one doesn't seem like it needed that to be successful i mean it made a lot of money i'm sure that it played in japan i just can't i can't I mean, boy, you would have a hard time watching this movie if you were anything other than a USA American from somewhere in the Middle West or Brooklyn. What's the edited for television cut runtime for this film? Like 40 minutes? (laughs) No, it's still an hour and a half because you could take a full hour of this movie away and it would still be a long movie. Yeah, a lot of work. Well, all films on Friendly Fire, even this one, are given the benefit of a custom rating system designed by me. And each rating system comes from an object that catches my eye in the film. Really wanted to turn this into a uh, half-bob rating system. 
I think that would have been fun. Come on. <laughs> why didn't you? Really wanted to turn this into a one to five uh, knives in a boot. I thought that would have been fun too. That that scene really stuck out to me in boot camp. The one scene that I will never forget from this film is the relative peace for, I don't know, an hour of the film. The calm of the battlefield before things pop off. To me, it's got to be Jack in the Box, man. Desmond is out on the battlefield. It's, it's eerie. And then he comes upon this body that positively shoots up out of the dirt and screams at him. It's like a jump scare from a corny teen horror film. It, the, the worst one is when he has the dream. Yeah. That is, I actually jump jumped. There are a lot of horror film technologies at play in this film. And that one is maybe the one that embodies that feeling the most. Jack in the Box Man, to me, is what makes this movie unique. It's what sets the tone for everything that follows. I think we're going to see half bobs in other films. We're going to see knife in the boot in other films. Those are those are tropish. But I don't think we're ever going to see Jack in the Box Man again. And that's why I'm going to set the rating scale at one to five Jack in the Box Men. <laughs> it's a little awkward. It doesn't quite roll off the tongue. I'm with you, though. There are two messages in this film that seem to be working at cross purposes. One of them is you can and should help fight against evil in the way that you're able to. To the degree that you can, that is, uh, that is good. That is a good and a right thing to do. But then there's the other message, which is don't let anyone tell you how to change your worldview. And that is a much darker vein in this thing. Desmond's beliefs are argued against throughout, but in the end... His beliefs end up doing so much good, and he is regarded as a hero for them. But I think there are a hundred other circumstances where his beliefs would be a real problem and could get people killed and do all of the things that people warn him against throughout the film. And put into a modern context, I think it emboldens people to not think critically about very strongly held beliefs. And I think that's bad, generally. I think all beliefs should be scrutinized. I think it's a healthy way to be. And I don't think this film does a lot to that end. And I think it's uh, a little dangerous to that degree. I don't know what this film is, really. Like, it's a statement about pacifism, but at the same time, it revels in its violence. It is so gory. And, like, I've got a high tolerance for this shit, but, wow. I don't know that we'll ever see another movie, another war film as gory as this. I don't know how you top it. It would just need more runtime. Like, it would just need to be two hours of everything happening at Hacksaw Ridge to top it. I mean, the religious imagery was... I mean, you knew what you were going to get. Like, this is Mel Gibson at the helm. This is a story that is really good and interesting. It's a movie that should be made. Mel Gibson doesn't do anything as a director that makes him any more suited to creating it than any other director. I don't think Mel Gibson is a great director. I think he's fine. I think you could put many other directors in this chair for this film and tell this story in a good way. So I don't, like, I don't blame this film's faults on him, and I don't... I don't think that uh, the ways that this film is good are 
because of him. I don't think it's a bad film. I don't think it's a bad war film. I think it's fine. Wow. Damning with faint praise. I think it's a three and a half Jack in the Box man war film. I think we've seen a lot worse than this. And I think we've seen a lot better. I think this film should exist. I think the story of Desmond Doss is really interesting. And I think Andrew Garfield's performance as him was interesting. Uh, I think it's worth watching. I really do. I know you guys came out of the gate like really ready to to hate it. I did for sure. What did you think of it? How would you review the film? Well, no, that's not the order that this process goes in. No, you want no. you want Ben goes next. All right. There's a fucking system here. Before I rate, I just want to register a complaint. I'm not saying that Jack in the Box guy is my guy. He's not. But I think it's unfair to base a rating system on a guy in a movie just in case that's somebody's guy. Oh. That is, wow. That is a great call. Point of order. All right. Yeah. So that's just uh, just for future reference. I'm not saying that we need to change it or anything. You but. know what? Here's the thing. I don't I don't know if we'll ever have another opportunity to use half bobs as a rating system. I'm ready to use half bob as rating system here. I, just, I don't I don't think we need to. And and I would also perhaps dispute that these are half bobs. There are potential half bobs, but none of them go into a body of water, which is where the bobbing comes from. All right. So, you know, we talked in the last movie and uh and a bit in this one about you know, the, the artists versus the art. I don't think that this film makes a case for itself. I think it is a weird choice and a super questionable choice for a mainstream actor who wants to have a mainstream film career to partner up with the people behind this movie. Like the original director attached to this was Randall Wallace of, Braveheart fame and of writing Pearl Harbor fame and we've talked about him and how he has built a career on spreading his Christianist belief system and he is on team Mel Gibson for that reason like his his next project is the 2020 the resurrection of the Christ so like that's the that's the air we're breathing in this movie christ rolls the stone down the hill and it like crushes 40 people (laughs) into a into a meaty paste it's a hell of a combination well gibson is a terrible person and i really do have a problem with the fact that all of these people were willing to go to work for him to tell this story which is Genuinely an amazing story, but told by a guy with an axe to grind that does not treat women and, you know, members of minority groups with any respect. And by working with him, you are legitimizing the public figure that he that he has made himself. And I think that all of these people in this movie should be subject to some public shame. They should also be canceled. Cancel them think, all. I don't think they should be canceled, but I, like I think that like if you know like uh, if we're evolving as a culture, like one of the things that needs to happen is is some some censure on people that that behave the way Mel Gibson has behaved. And when this script lands on your desk and it is a like a a piece about promulgating a a very specific read about what the benefit of religion is 
and and when you know what you know about the the people behind it like i think that that should raise red flags for every single actor in this film i think a lot like that soldier using a half bob as a human shield i really dislike how mel gibson took this story and used it as a shield for him you know whoa yeah i think that there's a way to tell a story about desmond doss that is interesting and illustrative of a genuinely amazing man who did some genuinely heroic things that does not encourage an audience not to question their own beliefs or whatever like the like the ideology in this movie is super duper toxic just like the director and i think that while the combat scenes are amazing like the entire first half of this movie is impossibly corny to me like there are tropes in the movie that are like obviously like well-worn pieces of war films and there are some things that are that genuinely advance war films in terms of like how how combat can be depicted but like mistying a knot as your first thing at boot camp and then that becoming a pivotal plot moment in the scene about how you got your medal of honor later is like so laughable and that like that scene made me laugh out loud at how bad and corny it was and I don't think that you can make the case that this is a director working at the height of his power when you have stuff like that. Like there are very beautifully choreographed war scenes in this film, but when it comes to storytelling and plants and payoffs and character development, I think it's a bad movie and uh, I'm going to give it one and a half Jack and the Boxman. Oof. How about you, John? Well, you know, we, when we, when this movie came up on our 120-sided die after watching The Patriot, it seemed almost too good um, <laughs> to watch two Mel Gibson movies, you know, that are that are, that bookend 15 years of his career where he was pretty off the scene, right? He was uh, he spent 10 years in the wilderness being defended only by Jodie Foster. And I think both movies share a, I have a, the same critique of both movies, which is there was a version of this story and a version of the Patriot story that were maybe smaller movies. And in both cases, the movies were, uh, were developed as blockbusters, summer blockbusters or whatever time of year they came out. But clearly like big budget, big special effects, like hero movies. Right. Take the whole family and eat a bucket of popcorn. Yeah, here we go. Like we're this is this is what movies are for to make big 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 movies. And unfortunately, I don't see in Hollywood um that the that there's a very clear line in what exactly kind of story benefits from an epic treatment. And in general, if you're making a movie about a very devout pacifist who wins the medal of honor by, um, you know, rescuing 75 men on the battlefield. It's at counter purposes to make a massive war epic that is like blood soaked and full of slow motion dying. It just isn't the same scale, right? You either are doing a biopic about a guy or you're doing a, a massive summer movie about the Battle of Okinawa. And somewhere in Hollywood now, there's this, I guess, idea that you that 
because we've run out of ways to tell World War II epics, now we're going to we're going to pick these people and we're going to look at the movie through their eyes. But there isn't really a connection. Just like with the Patriot, like the real people, that real story, it was really fascinating. But to fictionalize it and turn it into Last of the Mohicans or whatever it was that that movie ended up being, like the story of the person, the story of the one person, the bio pick story. It's not enough to support two and a half hours of epic war movie to build the story of Okinawa and, and put it on the shoulders of this poor guy with a eighth grade education, you know, who stared at a poster that said thou shalt not kill when he was 10 years old. And that was the, that was as deep as he ever got. His heroism isn't made greater by heaping carnage upon carnage. And at the end of the movie, Mel Gibson needed an end other than that we won the battle and everybody went back to the States. And so he does this thing where he's, where his cot flies up to heaven and you really feel like, wow, Dawes died at the end because there's no other reason that his cot would fly. And then we realized, oh, he didn't die. They actually just lowered him down on the ground and How sent him home. How bad do you wish Mel Gibson, like Mel Gibson was reading the script and he's like, God, let him die. Oh, come let on. Him, I want to shoot this so oh, bad. Oh, I, I wish he died. And so so it's a, it's a moment where he's trying to make yeah. something out of nothing. And not out of nothing. That's what's crazy. Yeah. This is an There's incredible story. Here. He's just trying to make something more out of it. Yeah. An allegory for something or a... You know, this is just one poor guy that did some amazing things and he deserves a better movie and I think a smaller movie. If we are making small movies these days, we're certainly not handing them to Mel Gibson to direct. And it's a good thing too. Mel Gibson read like the first chapter of heartbreaking work of Staggering Genius, put it down and went off to direct his movie. (laughs) But we saw it in Pearl Harbor too. I mean, it's a three hour movie and we get to the end of the Pearl Harbor sequence and we've got a main character who has somehow... Forrest gumped his way into every major battle of the early part of the war and then also goes on the Doolittle raid and we're just like come on man like just like focus a movie on a thing it wasn't just that I laughed in the first half of this movie I was laughing all the way to the end because there were just scenes there were just these little moments where where I couldn't believe that this was being used in a movie again and to so little effect these little moments you know that got the fucking half bob but the the whole boot camp scene the whole court martial scene we've seen it all before the op that falls in love with this girl and if this is a real guy then tell his real story like tighten this shit up it's so wild that these guys are like the the two things that they're obsessed with are like world war ii and jesus <laughs> like, world war ii and jesus Two great tastes. I do feel like there's an there's an audience for this, and that my review is one of those. They, the, your mileage it's may like vary. It's like today, uh, war with Iran and Jesus. <laughs> but if you if you're looking for a movie where it's like just action, you're just looking for action movie about war and watching people fucking die in super cool choreographed shots. Fast forward. Uh, to the to where the they hit Okinawa and this movie is like total popcorn fest. Um, if you're looking for, I don't know whatever. If you're looking for whatever this movie purports to be, this isn't the movie. It's not going to help you know your granddad any better watching this film. I don't think. 
this movie is such a trope salad that when they went to the movie theater and he, and he had a bag of popcorn in his lap and she went for some, I was like, oh my God, is this, is this going to be the dick in the popcorn scene? Yeah, almost, right? Is it also going to be Porky's 2? <laughs> Electric Boogaloo? Desmond could only get his half bob a little of the way through the bottom of the bucket. So I have to give this movie to Jack and the Boxman. Um, making war seem really stylish and really glamorous while while overtly trying to make us feel like war is horrible right that's i think the tension that drives me the craziest is yeah. that all those blood packets all those people writhing in agony on the surface we're meant to take that as like war is hell but it's so celebratory it is so you know the camera loves this death and it's just it, it soaks in it it's like um cannot kill enough people and to have that third overlay of this being about uh about how god uh works in mysterious ways it's just too it just strains it too much if you really wanted to make that point while not masturbating into the gore of these dead bodies you would kill people that desmond das had grown close to you would make it an emotional thing instead of a violent thing you could make this movie and not show anybody get get a headshot right because it's about dawes under fire rescuing and i mean i guess all the headshots give you a sense of the risk but so far over the top i mean if it's about desmond dawes and his faith and his heroism you don't need to have it be such a butcher shop mm-hmm. so to to jack and the boxman and, you know, not a penny more. Boy, I'm afraid that Jack in the Box guy ended up being someone's guy, Ben. It wasn't your guy, was it? Who was it instead? My guy is uh, a guy that we have, uh, like many of the tropes in this movie, seen in a lot of movies. And uh, I just feel like this guy doesn't get enough credit. Uh, so my guy is the corpse that he hides under. <laughs> That guy is in so many war films. He's so he's, good, he, that guy. He needs a Lifetime Achievement Award. He does. He's a very helpful man. Yeah. He has saved a lot of lives. Yeah. Like he that, really the, the guy the, the uh, main character hides under, like, has probably saved more lives than Desmond fucking Doss. For sure he has. He's the real so, hero. Yeah, he's the real hero, and he's my guy. Ben, I'd hide under your dead body if I had to. Uh, please, feel free. It would, on a number of levels, provide me with great comfort. I would use <laughs> use me in any way you you choose. Adam. He, he'd be like a thunder blanket to you when he the fireworks would. started. Yeah, I'd wrap his dead arms around me. Yeah. I would mm. need to use both of your dead bodies to conceal myself really from would. an enemy trooper. Yeah, we'd <laughs> it'd be like covering yourself with a pile of rakes. <laughs> uh, my guy is uh, he's one of the squad. Um, he doesn't really distinguish himself. He's not really the guy from Brooklyn. He's not the guy that can do magic. He's not the Jewish guy. He's not, although there was no Jewish guy in this one. He's not the ghoul. He's not the, the mean guy. He he's was not the nude man. He's not the nude man. The he nude was, guy with the little balls. He was just one of they the guys. They called him private parts, right? Did that joke get, get made? Wow. That might've flown past me. I think they called him that at one point and, but they like, they didn't. They didn't return to it because they went back to calling him Hollywood. But I thought Private Parts was like a pretty, a pretty rad 
boot camp nickname. He was Billy Zaning a little bit in the he eyebrow was. department, I thought. He was. He and in the yeah. mustache, too. Yeah. But my guy is uh, played by uh, an actor none other than Milo Gibson, Mel Gibson's son, whose IMDb page says, Milo Gibson is a, an Australian-born actor that played the role of Lucky in his father's film, Hacksaw Ridge. So as far as I know, I mean, I think he has some other credits, but uh, his role in Hacksaw Ridge is um, his major his major role. And uh, just the idea of being Milo Gibson, of uh, being cast by your dad as one of the guys in the boot camp and one of the guys, one of the troopers. He just, he has a face that looks... I really get high school bully vibes from him. I, I, I don't know him. I don't know his reputation, but there's something about him that, that makes me want to stay away from him. He seems like Chet Hayes a little bit, huh? He's in a, uh, he's in a, a movie coming out in 2019 called The Outpost that also stars Scott Eastwood. Wow. Put them all together. It's a war film. It's, a, it's a, an Afghanistan story. Wow. Put China Wilson in there too, and we'll have a uh, make it a make it a super group. Uh, anyway, so he's my guy. When I realized when I realized when I realized who he was, you know, I checked him out a little bit, and uh, and you know, he's he gets a couple of quips in there. There's a lot of good a lot of good photos online of his dad wearing a floppy Mick hat. Mick Jagger's son him. is going to be in this movie too. Holy shit. What the hell is going I'm on? I'm telling you, China Wilson's the only one we need. Wow. <laughs> wow. Did you guys Sorry. catch that there was a Mel Gibson cameo in this movie? I was looking all over yeah. for him, but I didn't see him. He was there somewhere. I didn't see him either. Maybe he was just on the battlefield somewhere, hacked to pieces. Who's your guy, Adam? My guy is young Desmond. And oh, he looks like you, young he, Desmond. Uh, I grew up with a younger brother and we would beat on each other all the time. And our fights frequently ended with one of us taking it up to a scary level. And I never hit my brother with a brick. (laughs) But there were some fights that ended with a scary amount of violence that uh, one or both of us like immediately regretted. To the level where, like, you're really scared that you really hurt the other person. That's why you can't have kids. And that performance, this is Darcy Bryce, who plays young Desmond. There was a reality to his performance there and his fear in the aftermath of bricking his brother that really made me sit up. Like, a lot of the first quarter of this film is, as you guys have said, really hacky and cheesy. But I thought there was something real feeling in that moment uh, that was affecting and it made uh, young Desmond my guy. One of the nice things about not being super smart is that stuff bounces off you. You don't spend a lot of time sitting around fretting and... Yeah, this is why we're also tortured. Yeah, that's why we have a podcast instead of being Congressional Medal of Honor winners. Uh-huh. But you know, like, <laughs> he, he sees a pretty nurse when he goes to give blood or when he goes in for his physical or whatever. he went. Oh, no, he saved a guy with a tourniquet. When you've got a belt in your hand, everything looks like a severed limb. <laughs> <laughs> but, like, he's so uncomplicated. <laughs> but and So we get this whole backstory of his alcoholic father and his relationship with his brother and his religion and so forth, but you never really, I don't know, you don't feel it really even making that much of an impact on the character. And the, uh, I should say, when we see the 
real footage of him later on at the very end of the movie where he's being interviewed. There's a story, there's part of his story. He was given, he was so injured in the movie that he was given, you know, 90% disability as a, as a civilian after the war. And at some point in the 1970s, he was given an overdose of antibiotics, which rendered him deaf. At which point the military was like, all right, okay, 100% disability. And he was deaf for 10 or 12 years from like 75 to 85. And then he had a a surgery, cochlear surgery of some kind that restored his hearing somewhat. At the end of the movie, we see him talking and he seems kind of a little strokey. Uh, but some of that may be that he spent the 10 years ju- immediately prior, like completely deaf. So he's kind of like talking out of the side of his mouth a little bit. Coincidentally, little strokey Ben Harrison's call sign. <laughs> <laughs> what are we watching next on Friendly Fire? Get Let's get our die out. We can, we'll only know by rolling that big die. I will tell you, Spooge, if John tells me... A number. All right. Now we've got another pork chop movie coming up. Is that right? By the time this is out, it's already going to be out. What pork chop movie is going to be out at that point? The most recent pork chop film we will have released will be Triple Frontier, which is about some uh, some ex uh, army rangers going on a drug heist. Well, let me let me tell you, listeners, pledge your support. Go to MaximumFun.org slash donate and support Friendly Fire, and you can listen to our awesome Pork Chop movie feed. There's a monthly bonus episode on this show. But here goes our, our, our die. Ready? Thirty-two. Thirty-two is a 2010 French-financed movie about Algerian independence. Okay. Outside the law. Look at those hats. <laughs> so this is this is a, a French movie made in France in 2010. Yeah. Well, it's it's going to be interesting to see whether it is a colonial apologist movie or whether it's a modern, um, like self evaluating self-immolating i look forward to being accused of being a colonial apologist by an academic who has a way more nuanced understanding of the film that they teach a class about every year that's why we do the show ben (laughs) well we'll leave it with robs from here so for john roderick and adam pranik i've been ben harrison to the victor go the spoiler alerts Friendly Fire is a Maximum Fun podcast hosted by Ben Harrison, John Roderick, and Adam Pranica. It's produced by me, Rob Schulte. Our theme music is War by Edwin Starr, courtesy of Stone Agate Music. And our logo art is by Nick Dittmore. If you feel like supporting the show, head on over to MaximumFun.org donate. It helps us keep the lights on over here at Friendly Fire. And as an added bonus, you'll get access to our Pork Chop feed, as well as all of the other bonus content on Maximum Fun. If you'd like to share the show online, use the hashtag FriendlyFire. You can find Ben on Twitter at BenjaminAHR. Adam is at CutForTime. John is at John Roderick, and I'm at Rob K. Schulte. Thanks, we'll see you next week. Fun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.